Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Here's a joke a child told me recently, which was a, a hamburger and a hot dog walk into a bar and the bartender says, hey guys, I'm sorry we don't serve food in here. Not good, not a good joke. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. You just got a joke from filmmaker Jim Jarmusch that'll help break the ice, and bad as it was, it is the perfect mm. food-centric gag to kick off this, our annual post-Thanksgiving all-food episode, featuring some of our favorite food segments from the last year, including interviews with Ruth Reichel and three Michelin star chef Danielle Ballou, all piled together indiscriminately on the same plate. It's a pig out for your ears. Hooray. And to kick things off, here's an appetizer from Josh Epstein, one half of the danceable indie band Dale Earnhardt Jr. Jr. Mm. A while back, he told us some songs he'd play at a dinner party, one of which was Jimmy Buffett's Cheeseburger in Paradise, <laughs> and not because it's about food. Cheeseburger The low point in my music career actually revolves around Cheeseburger in Paradise. I used to do cover shows to pay the bills while, you know, between going on tour. There was a time when I was playing the lunch hour at a Mongolian barbecue, and then the manager came up to me and he said, can you learn some Jimmy Buffett songs for tomorrow? Can you do Cheeseburger in Paradise? I got to the part where there's the breakdown, and he's saying, I like mine with lettuce and tomato. And I just broke down crying because it was the most embarrassing, humiliating moment of my life. And this is like in the middle of a performance. I think for a dinner party, the most important thing is facilitating an easy conversation. Having a personal anecdote that you can easily draw upon is kind of a nice, a nice thing. And being able to reveal the most uncomfortable moments in your life endears you to people and thereby bringing you closer. Got that. So in keeping with Josh's suggestion for our next course in this all food show, we are going to play you a story that featured one of the most uncomfortable moments in Brendan's life. That's right. <laughs> and it also involved weeping. That's nice. I'm talking about the time I visited a store in Brooklyn called The Pickle Guys. They're known, no surprise, for pickles. Hmm. But every year around Passover, that other feasting holiday, a guy in a gas mask appears outside the store grinding fresh, super spicy horseradish. Horseradish, of course, a staple in the traditional Passover meal. That's right. So to see the radish grinding in action and to learn what exactly horseradish is, I headed to the store and spoke with one of the owners, Alan Kaufman. He gave me an earful and later a painful sinusful of information. <laughs> Horseradish is a root. It sort of grows in the ground like a carrot. And with the Jewish religion, it's a bitter herb. We use it for Passover to uh, shed tears for the suffering for the Jews when we left Egypt. When you're getting horseradish, is there anything you look for? Well, when we buy our horseradish, we try to find the biggest and fattest roots. We try to find them with green tops on top, not dried off so the green is nice and fresh so you know it wasn't laying around anywhere. And most of the time, it always has a little bit of mud around it, so we know it's freshly picked. It's the dirt that makes it... Well, that way, you know, if it's dry and it's, there's no dirt or mud on there, you know it's been sitting around for a while. We want the hottest, so we go for the, the fresh ground. So the fresh stuff gives you the most heat? Yes, yes, yes. We get our horse rash from St. Louis, Missouri. Why is that 
especially good horseradish? Or? That's the best horseradish you get. It's the horseradish that comes from uh, Mississippi or Missouri because it's grown in the Mississippi River by the mud. So it's the best horseradish you can get. So horseradish is like mud. Yeah, it likes mud, yes. It likes that moisture. So you're, you're the pickle guys, and behind you are barrels and barrels of great pickled things. Why horseradish and pickles? The old-timers that started it in 1910, they would fill in, I guess, uh, with horseradish, because at that time they only had like three or four barrels of items. Uh, today we got about 35 different types of uh, barrels here. So in the, in the holiday time they would make Russell Borscht, which is what we also do, and then they would make, they'd make the horseradish for Passover. So people don't have to go in their house, grate the horseradish, and make everybody in the house cry. Yeah. Horseradish. 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 You want to try a piece? There you go. Tell us what you think. Damn. <laughs> Horseradish. That'll clear your sinuses, won't it? Damn sure will. <laughs> so, so do a lot of people come up and ask for samples? Yeah, a lot of people A lot of people don't believe it's hot, and then when they eat it, they go, wow, that's hot. So tell me what's going on here. We got, so we got Right now, Chris is going to grind up some horseradish. We have some peeled, cleaned horseradish roots. He's going to put it into a horseradish grinder, and it's going to grate the horseradish very fine, I guess would be the only word. And is this specifically made for grinding horseradish? This is actually made for grinding cheese. Now Chris has a gas mask on. Is that because he's a psychopath or because that... <laughs> he's a little psycho anyway. He's going to grate horseradish for 10 hours a day for two weeks straight, and, you know, it's the only way to keep him sane from not running up and down the block and ripping his clothes off. Is this going to make me cry? You bet it is. Chris, is this going to make me cry? Yes, it is. <laughs> All right. It smells good. And I'll take a whiff. Take a whiff of that. Woo! Oh, there we go. Oh. See? Yeah, it's working, huh? Now you know why we isn't the answer to It was like uh, World War One in the trenches there. That's right. Mustard gas. All right, so he's got a bowl of it here, and it looks like Parmesan cheese, but it's moist. And now he, now you're putting it into, what's going on here? He's got to put it into a, a, another bucket. Uh -huh. That's our, the bucket we mix it in. He's going to add white vinegar to actually, it's apple cider vinegar for, for pesto. We use apple cider vinegar. And then he's going to mix it up until it's a, sort of like a mashed potato consistency. And then he's going to put them in jars, bottle them in jars. So the apple cider vinegar, because that's kosher? Kosher for pesto. Apple cider vinegar is kosher for pesto. If you're going to make it all year round, you use just regular white distilled okay. vinegar. And isn't this whole process, like, rabbinically supervised? Everything here is uh, under the supervision of Rabbi Shemul Fischelis. He comes here at least twice a week to check on everything. Does he wear a gas mask? He doesn't wear a gas mask, but he doesn't stay long. <laughs> We chase them out with the gate with the horseradish. All right, so then, so you put it in there, and how long does it sit inside the... It can stay in that jar to four to six months and still have a lot of heat. And they add either beet juice to it to make it red horseradish or we use apple cider vinegar to make it white horseradish. Is there going to be a flavor difference with uh, between the red and white? Yes, the red will be a little sweeter. Most people use red horseradish for gefilte fish because that way you can see how much horseradish you put on the gefilte fish. Oh, interesting. If you use the white, you really can't tell. Are you tired of horseradish? Like by the end of this season, do you not touch it for another year? The fresh ground we only make once a year, and every year I look forward to making it. And every year when I start making it and I try and I go, wow, that's hot. And then 10 minutes later I try to go, wow, that's hot. By the, by the end of this season, I, I'm pretty much done with horseradish. I don't want to see it no more. Like I've cried my bitter tears. You're like, I'm definitely not going back to slavery in Egypt. Yeah, yeah exactly. It'll never happen. Not in the matzah. I don't know how those guys did it for 40 years in the matzah. <laughs> now you know why my people are unhappy. <laughs>
So, Rico, I know you're wondering, what does horseradish have to do with horses? You read my mind. Yeah. Answer the question. And the answer is nothing. <laughs> the word horse is used to describe several plants, which are coarse, large, or strong. Uh-huh. And radish comes from the Latin radix, which means root. Look at you. I'll learn it about horseradish. Yeah, I learned all about that when filing my lawsuit against the pickle guys. <laughs> All right, we've had an appetizer, overspiced it with the killer condiment, yeah. but we still haven't provided you with a cocktail, so let's do that right now. Yes, this is the part of the show where we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. We call it our history lesson with booze. Clever us. First, the history part. We're going to tell you about the advent of a famous product that's somewhere between candy and a breath freshener. Yes, just the thing to follow up a mouthful of horseradish. Michelle Philippi is here to tell you the tale of Wrigley's chewing gum. Business students, chew on this. William Wrigley Jr. turned free stuff into cash. It all began in Chicago in April 1891, when William launched a company selling household products like baking soda. To give store owners a little incentive to stock it, he offered a gift. For every can of baking soda they bought, he threw in two free packs of chewing gum. As Wrigley predicted, merchants took the bait. But even he was surprised when the gum sold better than the baking soda. It was all Wrigley needed to see. Just two years later, he had quit the baking soda biz and started churning out the first batches of juicy fruit gum. Now, Wrigley didn't invent chewing gum, but he did invent a practice that probably helped make his gum so popular, direct marketing. In 1915, the company mailed out 1.5 million free samples, one for every household in every phone book in America. Since then, Americans have gone without Wrigley's most popular flavors just once, during World War II when rationing meant the company only had enough good ingredients to supply juicy fruit and double mint to soldiers. Civilians had to settle for a lower quality substitute. Wrigley's called it Orbit. Everything worked out in the end, of course. The Nazis were defeated, juicy fruit returned to American shelves, and Orbit was retired, before being reborn in the 2000s as a sugar-free gum. Today, the gum bubble shows no signs of bursting, the industry cranks out 374 trillion sticks a year. So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. On the line is Nandini Kound from the Violet Hour. The bar is in Chicago, where the Wrigley Company was founded. So Nandini, a chewing gum-themed drink, I'm curious to hear how you met this challenge. Well, I came up with a drink called The Taste is Gonna Move You When You Pop It in Your Mouth based on the theme for the Juicy Fruit commercials. <laughs> oh, right. That was the the Juicy Fruit jingle from the 70s and 80s. From the total 80s ad, yeah. From my youth. Um, it's going to be hard to order. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Especially if you've had a number of them because you'll forget what it's called. <laughs> but what, so what is in this thing? Um, so basically, I did some research on Juicy Fruit and found out that Basically, the flavor is a very mysterious concept that people have been debating for a while. Yeah, like what is that flavor, basically? What is that flavor? Yeah, it's like kind of banana-like, kind of pineapple-like. But I found a lot of research that said that jackfruit, which is a Southeast Asian tropical fruit, was kind of loosely the juicy fruit flavor. Jackfruit? Jackfruit, yeah. So I just basically made a daiquiri, a simple daiquiri, with this 
rum from Tennessee called Pritchard's, okay. which in the most flattering of ways, it has a little bit of hint of bubblegum to it. Oh. Where does the jackfruit come in? So you start with rum. Yeah, basically it's three quarter ounces of lime, a half ounce of, you can buy canned jackfruit from like Asian specialty markets. So I just use um, a half ounce of the canned jackfruit syrup because a real jackfruit is super pain because I looked for one and I was like, oh, these are really large, prickly, <laughs> and I have no idea how to open this. So I just got a canned one. But um, a half ounce of jackfruit syrup Two ounces of the Pritchard's rum, and you just shake it and pour it either over ice or neat. I do think that regardless, to really keep with the theme as you drink it, it should lose its flavor. <laughs> Though that's really important. <laughs> Nandini Count of the Violet Hour in Chicago, which, among other things, earned a James Beard Award nomination for Best Bar Program. You can I see why. It was a clever drink. I think so. But I kind of hope she'd come up with a gum-themed cocktail that you could, you know, stick under a seat at a movie theater. <laughs> That'd be a trick. Or like a drink you could scrape off your shoe if you stepped into it. But, you know, like a true gum-themed drink. In what situation drink. does one step in a cocktail? <laughs> <laughs> Bathtub gin. All right, <laughs> folks. There's far more appetizing talk to come on this all-food post-Thanksgiving episode, including my conversation with food writer Ruth Reichel. When the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor to fuel your party conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And this week we're concentrating on the food part of culture, food, and humor. Yes. It's our annual all-food post-Thanksgiving episode featuring our favorite culinary moments of the last year. Later, you'll hear my chat with Michelin-starred chef Daniel Ballou. But first, let's hear Rico's conversation with a different kind of food star. That's right. It is Ruth Reichel. She is one of the most respected food writers of the last few decades. She was restaurant critic for the Los Angeles Times, then the New York Times, and then editor-in-chief of the beloved, venerable food magazine Gourmet, until it folded in 2009. Rest in peace. Yep. She's written a series of nonfiction bestsellers about food, but her latest is a novel. It's called Delicious! Exclamation point. I spoke to her this summer when it came out. Ruth, it's an honor. It's great to be here. So this is the story of a young woman. Her name is Billy. She moves from California to New York City to take a job at a respected, venerable food magazine. It's called Delicious, which shortly thereafter suddenly folds. It sounds an awful lot like your experience at Gourmet. <laughs> Why write about that experience in novel form rather than the memoirs you're known for? I mean, I guess it sort of happened because I had this experience of when the magazine was closing, yeah. going in. I, the first thing I did was lock the library because we had this amazing library at Gourmet that, you know, every great cookbook since 41 came through there and it was it had been beautifully curated. Mm. And I thought someone will want this library. So I went over to just a filing cabinet and opened it. I'd never done that before. And there was every letter Gourmet had ever gotten. Man. And I sort of had one of these epiphanies that you sometimes do as a writer. What if I had found a bunch of letters by a little girl during World War II to James Beard, who had, in fact, worked for the magazine at one point? Which is sort of the twist of the book that Billy finds, that cache of letters. Right. And I wanted her to be in this, I mean, food people are the most generous people I know. A really good food magazine is a warm, embracing place. And it was just a way of putting her in a very warm atmosphere. 
how much of that atmosphere is actually based on the real gourmet and how much of it is fantasy. The delicious magazine that you represent here, it is the kind of place where an editorial assistant is not only not admonished for wandering for hours during her workday around Greenwich Village tasting food, she is encouraged to do so. Was that actually the case? Um, yes. I, you know, Even when I was at the LA Times as the food editor, what I said to people was, I don't want to see you sitting at your desk. Get out. I never had a sense that people do their best work sitting at their desks. <laughs> I think they do their best work by you know, going out and living and bringing you stories back. That was how gourmet Ran. All right. So basically, if you have a chance to have you as a boss, yeah. take it. I'm not sure about that. But <laughs> <laughs> um, the twist in the book, as you said, comes when she, she stumbles upon this batch of letters from World War II. And they're letters from this young reader of the magazine to the great food writer, James Beard. Beard lived well into the 1980s. Why did you decide to have this correspondence date specifically back to the 1940s? For a lot of reasons. I mean, one was that I had the great good fortune of finding in a thrift store a whole trove of documents from World War II, mostly from the Department of Agriculture, how to grow a victory garden, how yeah. to cook with rations. Food was considered one of the fronts of the war. Because it was in shorter supply, obviously. It was in shorter supply. I mean, the, the Crop Conservation Corps was really about people going out and picking fruits and vegetables on the farms because the farmers were all at war. They knew that they had to feed the soldiers. People were saving their fat and I don't think there's been another time in the history of this country where we were eating at the same table. Going back to the letter writing aspect of the book, these letters are being written to James Beard. My understanding is you knew him. I can't say I knew him well. I met him many times, yes. you Obviously, you think of him as perhaps the ultimate pen pal for a food-obsessed person. What made him so great? He, For one thing, he was one of the few Americans of his time who really understood that American food could be great. I mean, in a time when, you know, Americans were kind of ashamed of their cuisine, he really understood that part of our strength was that we're a nation of immigrants and that we've absorbed all of these different food ways into our culture. I mean, in many ways, he is the father of modern American cuisine. What would you most like to talk to him about today, if you could correspond with oh. him? I would just love to walk around with him and show him New York today. Um, He'd be like, what? Are you kidding? Yeah. I mean, he would be, I think, so thrilled at where we are now with food. I never thought that I would see a time when food became part of popular culture, when people would think of eating, going to restaurants as interesting as going to movies, going to theater, that it would become something educated people were really interested in. You were talking about the 1940s, this time when, as you say, uh, you know, Americans all ate from the same table. They all had to chip in to grow and cook food for everyone. Obviously, you are very proud of where American culture has come. But in a way, do you want to go back to the 40s? Maybe we've come too far in one direction and lost something? Well, I mean, I think the thing that we've lost is eating has become a real class issue in America, and that's shameful. Everybody has a right to eat well, and it should, we should not be in a place where rich people can eat food that's never been touched by pesticides and poor people are left with you know, eating stuff that's cheaper than food. If I could dial it back, that's what I would dial it back to. 
Do you have any idea of maybe a direction to go to make that happen? One of the ways is we start thinking about justice for food workers. Hmm. You know, the people who are being relegated to eating the stuff that's cheaper than food shamefully are often the people who are picking and packing and serving the food. There's a famous quote about music critics, which is writing about music is like dancing about architecture. It's such a great quote. (laughs) Of course. And a cynical person might say the same thing about a food critic or someone who's writing a novel about food. Why why do we need it? Well, I let me let me answer that with one of the letters I got when I was at the New York Times. I got a letter from a man who said, "I wish you would write more often about steakhouses." I had a, tr- a quadruple bypass and I am no longer allowed <laughs> to eat red meat, and the only time I ever get to taste it is when you write about it. Wow. So basically there people are living vicariously through you to an extent. I mean, that's what all good writing does, really. You make people feel and taste and smell things. Ruth Reichel, her novel Delicious is out now. And Brendan Ruth told me she figured that since most people who read her restaurant reviews would never get to actually dine in these places, Mm -hmm. her job is to make them feel like they're sitting across the table from her. Slash make them seethe with jealousy (laughs) that her job is to eat at excellent restaurants all the time. That is a side effect I've experienced, yes. And now, time to eavesdrop. Michael Gibney started working in kitchens at age 16, eventually becoming sous chef in New York City's Tavern on the Green restaurant. That experience informed his debut book, Today, we overhear him give us a taste. Hello, my name is Michael Gibney, and I have a new book out called Sous Chef, 24 Hours on the Line. It's a book about professional cooking, one day in the life of the second-in-command. In the family of a restaurant, if chef were mom or dad and all the cooks were siblings, the sous chef would be the oldest sibling uh, who, who sort of takes charge of the pack when chef's not around. So I'm going to read an excerpt from the book. At this moment, we're in the throes of a Friday night service. It's gotten extremely busy, food critics have shown up, and one of the cooks has just gone down, so the sous chef has to step in and take control of the situation. Everything becomes one motion for just this very moment. We switch to autopilot. Finish one fish, move to the next. Start with a hot pan, start with hot oil. If it's not hot, wait. Don't start early, it'll stick. Check the oven instead. There's something in there. It needs to be flipped. Out it comes, in goes the butter, let it bubble. Crush the garlic, arrosé, flip, arrosé again. Put a new pan down, season the bass, always from a height. The bass goes in, three chars go down, the skin souffle, press them to the heat, hear the crackle. The pan is too hot, the oil smells scorched, start again. Burner at full tilt, now for the mussels. They jump in the oil, aromas flourish. Here's a bronzino, first of the night. Score its skin into the griswold, its eyeball pops. Flip it over into the oven. On with more gambas, on with more pans, on with more burners. Scrape down the plancha, wipe down the piano, towel your brow. Printer's buzz, a new pick, six more fish. Your legs are tired, tickets blur. Chef needs more. Next up, cooks moan. We chef. Fat splutters, timers chime, food goes, tickets are stabbed. New ones are plucked up. Organize the board, start again. Eight fish now, a pan to each, eight butters, eight garlics, eight flips, eight arrosés, eight plates, eight more picks. 
Machine gun frequency, clean pants from Kiko. They're getting heavy. They drop on the flat top like a bullet blast. Your arms are stiff. The bronzino is done. Swing open the oven. The heat blazes. Dries your eyes. Blink it out. Grab up the Griswold. Bring home the door. The towel is wet. The pan burns your hand. Dizziness. Nausea. Synesthesia. Pain. This is normal. This is what we do. We're in this together. We're almost there. An hour vanishes before you snap back into consciousness and realize that all this time you've been operating entirely on instinct. The thought is jarring. You emerge disoriented, knees buckling like a newborn foals. It's a moment before you can figure out what has brought you back to life. And then it hits you. You've just sent out the last piece of fish you had cooking. There's some tickets on the board, but nothing is fired yet. There's nothing working. You're finally caught up. The station is messy. You take this opportunity to do a clean sweep of it. You look around the kitchen. Everybody's red-faced and sweaty, but they too are tidying their stations. They're folding their towels, changing their spoon water, surveying their mise en place. They slug seltzer from quart containers, belch, and stretch. They made it through the push, and so have you. Just then, you remember that you have half a cigarette that you clipped earlier on before a service started. You extract the soggy packet from your pocket. The cardboard is frayed, the cigarette's bent out of shape. You pluck up the clip with a fishy pair of fingernails. Offline, you say, and make your way past Warren toward the loading dock. Chef winks at you as you pass him. You smile and raise an eyebrow. Out back, you kick the door open and light up your smoke. Michael Gibney reading from his book, Sous Chef, 24 Hours on the Line. It's in stores now, and you're listening to the Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. We've talked to a food writer. We've hung out in a professional kitchen. How about let's eat something on this all-food episode, Brendan? <laughs> How about listening to me eat something? That'll be fine. All right, let's do I it. I wish it was me, but okay. <laughs> You'll have your moment. Uh, a few months back, I had the good fortune of speaking with Nicole Ponseca. A couple years ago, she quit her high-powered job at the ad firm Saatchi & Saatchi and opened two New York City establishments specializing in Filipino cuisine, her native mm-hmm. cuisine. Nice. Uh, the food is utterly delicious, but it's only now sort of filtering into the mainstream consciousness. Before she stuffed me to the gills with Filipino delicacies, I asked her why it's taken so long for her native cuisine to catch on. We're the highest growing minority, highest educated, highest income, and no one knows our food. Every hospital you go to, someone Filipino is taking care of you. Could could that be part of the story? Is it that Filipino immigrants didn't focus on restaurants and instead they went into healthcare or another profession? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We very much value education and status jobs for ego, you know, to say my daughter is a nurse or my daughter is a doctor, but also it's risk averse. So we were not asked to become entrepreneurs. We were not asked to run a restaurant. In fact, I held this as a secret from my parents until the press started coming out because I didn't want them to be disappointed that really doing a restaurant. You were secretly opening this restaurant in New York. And then only because they found the press and they were like, Nicole, what is this Facebook post about your restaurant? And you're not in advertising anymore. I was like, uh, yeah, no, I have a Filipino restaurant. So what was their reaction? This was their reaction. Stone face, <laughs> silence. Their reaction was like, what about health insurance? What about your savings? You know, yeah, like they were concerned for you. So 
Let's talk about the food itself. What are some of the broad themes of Filipino food? I say that Filipino food is the soul food of Asia, and we're almost the original Asian food. We were Malay, um, descendants of Malay, and then you name a country when we were probably conquered by them or colonized. So you take a little bit of Chinese and noodles and stir fries and the idea of fresh vegetables quickly cooked um, with uh, simple garlic or aromatics like chives and stuff to one pot stews that we got from Spain, like deep stews that you cannot mimic in an hour. And also out of practicality, because while we're picking in the rice field, that meat is, that cheap meat, that cheap cut is tenderizing so much. And like the, the fattiness and the meatiness is mixing with potatoes and tomatoes and vegetables. That is Spain. Uh, and then melee, the use of coconut milk and fermented shrimp paste. So you have all these things and it's a soul food. It's also not precise. It's not like Japanese, which is so beautiful and specific. Can you just give me some of the hits? We'll do half of a David Letterman skit. Okay. The top five top Filipino five. dishes. Okay. Coming in on number five is lumpia. What is lumpia? So lumpia is um, a spring roll, and every Asian culture has some sort of spring roll, uh, um, some sort of vegetable or meat filling that's wrapped in a rice crepe and fried. Um, number four on the list would be pancit. Pancit, okay, tell me more about this. So pancit, it just means noodles. And just like in Italy, for example, you'll have spaghetti carbonara or fettuccine alfredo. And what kind of noodles are they? Um, all rice noodles um, in varying thickness or length. What is the flavor profile? What differentiates it from spaghetti carbonara or pad thai? What are, would be some Filipino classic flavors? Um, fermented trim paste or fermented fish sauce called patis or bagoong. Sounds good. Yeah, it's so good. I interrupted your list here. We're at number three. I'm probably going to get some debate over this, but I would say for me it is adobo. Adobo is our national dish uh, in the Philippines. That's what they call it anyway. It's any dish that is made with a, a lot of vinegar, uh, soy sauce, bay leaf, peppercorns, and garlic. So this is this is the vinegar kind of stew, vinegary stew that I've heard about when I think of Filipino cuisine. Yeah, and the, why it's so in, special to the Philippines is because it's been said that we are the ones that invented stewing food with vinegar to protect it during like typhoon season. You can literally sit and sit and it just gets better and better. Mm. Um, and it's so sour and it's so salty and it, you have to eat so much rice with it. It's so good. But it's only number three. It's only number three because there are two other dishes that just really sing to me as being a Filipino. Um, number two on my dish would be arroscaldo. Which is? Um, arroscaldo is a rice porridge. And you can see some of our Chinese influence. So it's intense ginger and garlic and chicken broth. We make a little saffron oil to put on top. Okay, so then what's number one? Number one for me, and it's only me, so I can't speak for everyone, is kare kare. Kare kare, which is? Kare kare is our oxtails. It's slow cooked. My dad would cook it on um, special occasions for me. He would cook it for hours. It's with the peanut butter sauce and the fermented shrimp paste. And I, I really want to say there's so much more. Like there's tenola, there's like. Yeah. But for me, the reason why it was so poignant is because I remember distinctively when I was four and my mom said, don't feed her the fish paste. She won't like it. Or maybe she's already too Americanized. Maybe mm. she won't honor being Filipino. And my dad was like, no, this, this girl is Filipino. She'll love it. And I, and I ate it up, and, I, and I've loved it ever since. Oh, wait. Did you, is that a story that you test marketed Sachi Sachi? Stop it. No, that's the truth. The 
Nicole Ponseca. You can order all five of her favorites at her restaurant, Maharlika, in Manhattan. Mm. Enrico, I recorded that interview last October, and I'm still eating the leftovers. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. I haven't gone grocery shopping since Robin Thicke's blurred lines topped the charts. <laughs> she set you right up. His career's over. I'm still eating. All right. Coming up, we talk to star chef Daniel Ballou, and we meet a man who met a man who dreams of sushi Hmm. when this all-food episode of The Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. This is our annual all-food post-Thanksgiving buffet episode featuring some of our favorite food pieces we have aired over the last year. But right now, we'd like to present you with an all-new little audio morsel from Mr. B.J. Novak. He wrote, produced, and was among the stars of the hit show The Office. He also appeared in Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards and is currently a character on the show The Newsroom. But earlier this year, he released his first book of humor essays. Here's one of them. This is B.J. Novak. I'm reading a story from my book, One More Thing. This is The Man Who Posted Pictures of Everything He Ate. Once there was a man who posted pictures online of most of the things he ate. He put up pictures of most of his meals and some of his snacks with little captions. Yum! I made this myself! Hits the spot. Salty. I'm going to regret this tomorrow. Yum. And plenty of times, most of the time, he simply let the pictures speak for themselves. The 16, then 15, then 16, then 14 people who followed him made fun of him for it mercilessly. Why do you post pictures of your food? We don't give a what you ate. The more they teased him, the more he did it. And the more he did it, the more they teased him. Why do you always post pics of your food? He did it because it made him feel like he was eating his meals with more people. It was the same reason he liked the teasing. Yeah, B.J. Novak, reading from his collection, One More Thing, Stories and Other Stories. And if you're going to be in the Los Angeles area on Saturday, December 13th, you can hear more from him in person. Yes. Because he's going to be a guest at our live holiday show. It takes place at KPCC's Crawford Family Forum in Pasadena, California. For more information, go to kpcc.org slash forum. All right. And since we're on the subject of taking pictures of food, here is an interview I did with a guy who kind of did that for a living. His name is David Gelb, and he made the documentary Jiro Dreams of Sushi. It's about Mm. the famed sushi chef Jiro Ono. And since its release in 2012, it has become required viewing for food enthusiasts. Back then, I spoke to him about it. David, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. You are very welcome. Thanks for making the movie. For those who don't know, how highly regarded is Jiro in the culinary world? Well, Jiro Ono is an 86-year-old sushi chef, um, widely regarded as the greatest sushi chef of all time. He has a small restaurant in the basement of an office building right next to a subway station. It's a 10-seat bar. You get 20 pieces of sushi for about $400. And it's the best sushi in the world. It's absolutely incredible tasting. It better be. 
I I was watching the movie. It said thirty thousand yen for like basically fifteen minutes of eating. I did not know what that translated to. Four hundred dollars. Yeah, it's it's just under four hundred, depending on what extras you get, because he's getting the absolute best of every ingredient in the market. So if you order an extra piece of tuna, your bill could just jump. Basically, you spend a lot of time working with a master. Tell us a few things that maybe the casual eater doesn't know about sushi, but you were surprised to learn. Well, the first big surprise to Westerners would probably be that、um, the the rice is just as important as the fish, if not more important. In fact, Jiro says that it's seventy percent rice, thirty percent fish. It's it's the rice that makes a sushi restaurant great. And it's the rice that elevates the fish. And it's interesting in the movie they go. He really goes on at almost hilarious length about how proud he is of the pressure that he cooks his rice under. There's like a lid that he puts on the pot that you need two hands to put on there, and then there's like a a pot full of water that he puts on top of that. What does the pressure have to do with anything? Well, the pressure has to do with the texture and and shape of the rice. So he's using a specific type of rice that, when cooked under high pressure, it becomes very fluffy. But at the same time, it retains its texture and shape.、Uh, each individual grain has its own identity. But it's still, when you eat it, it just kind of,、um, it's just light. And、uh, it's. I wish I, there was an easier way to explain it. But I wish、um, you'd brought some. By the way, I guess you must have eaten quite a bit of his food as you shot this, right?、Um, well, I was lucky that you know it became my job to. Hang out with the world's best sushi chef. That's why you took this job, isn't it? And then you know somebody has to eat it. You know,、uh, it sucks.、Yeah. Do, I mean, are you able to eat sushi with regular, non-highly pressurized cooked rice anymore? Can you just like you know the the I, I've been spoiled by Jiro's rice. The, it, it is possible to get good fish pretty much anywhere. Anywhere in the world, you're able to you know fly in really high quality fish, cost permitting. But the rice just takes a lot of skill. So、uh, one other thing, maybe that、uh, perhaps you didn't know about sushi before you started this thing. Sure. Well, I didn't realize、um, how much of a team effort sushi is.、Um, it, at at Jiro's restaurant, which is called Sukiyabashi Jiro, it's his decades of experience that have developed all the recipes and things that the, that his apprentices are making. But ninety five percent of the work of sushi is done before the customers even enter the restaurant, and this work is in painstaking preparation that starts as early as six in the morning every morning. They have to massage the octopus for a full hour before it's tender and flavorful enough for him to serve. I just I didn't know how much work goes into creating something that's perfectly simple.、Uh, the thing that springs to mind from the film when you talk about this is the one apprentice who has to learn how to make the egg sushi, which I've only rarely had in the first place. It seems sort of like an afterthought to me. This in Jiro's restaurant is kind of the pinnacle of sushi making. Well, I, I think you're 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 so right. The egg sushi is kind of you know. Uh, a lot of people kind of scoff at it in the United States because they think, "Oh, well, I can make eggs at home. I'm here for fish." But、um, at a great sushi restaurant, the egg is the final test to tell if you are, you know, a worthy chef of the restaurant. At Sukiyabashi Jiro, before you're even allowed to attempt to make the egg, you have to have been working there for ten years, and then you're allowed to try to make it. The character in our film, Nakazawa, attempted to make the egg two hundred times before Jiro decided that it was good enough to serve to a customer. What is it about it that is so difficult? It's just about for, on, on Jiro's level of perfection. There's not a set recipe that you have to do it this way every single time. You have to、um, make minute adjustments based on the ingredients that you have. 
In the case of the egg sushi, they create their own shrimp paste. So depending on the type of shrimp that they have that day, they have to adjust the quantity of it. Same with the type of mountain yam that they have. Same with the type of eggs that they're getting. And then the final difficult part is flipping the egg in the pan. And that involves four chopsticks that you have um, wedged into your knuckles. It takes a really long time to get that right. I do have to ask, it's just the amount of detail that goes into this kind of thing. Is it, to your mind, does it really yield something that is so sublimely better that it's worth, A, the time and effort, and B, the cost? Absolutely. There's no doubt about that. It's an art. You know, I'm not a painter, but I can put paint on a canvas and call it a painting. Um, and that's what a lot of sushi chefs in the West really do. Um, it seems simple, but it just takes decades of experience to master. And Jiro says, you know, the closer that he gets to the finish line, the farther away it becomes. He's 86 years old. He says that he's now just getting the hang of it. David Gelb, he made the documentary Jiro Dreams of Sushi. You can find it on DVD and on Netflix now. And Brendan, David's going from sushi, the Mm -hmm. most sublime, literally palatable subject, to another extreme. His upcoming fiction film debut is a horror movie. (laughs) Is it about Jiro's prices? Because... He does charge a frightening <laughs> yeah, amount. Yeah, I don't dream. I get nightmares thinking okay. about them. Uh, people, let's move from one world-famous chef to another, shall we? All right. Around this time last year, I was lucky to speak with Daniel Ballou, the man behind the three Michelin star restaurant called Danielle. It's a crazy name. I know, right? restaurant. So Ballou had just put out a beautiful book called My French Cuisine that included many of his recipes. I, of course, tried to arrange a tasting of some of them, but alas, that wasn't possible. Oh. Yeah. Struck out again. So when we spoke, I decided to conduct a virtual tasting with him. And the first thing I ordered was venison consomme with black truffle. Do you think there is any other ingredient who are so rare, so luxurious, and so delicious? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) That is true. Well, it's almost, it's so rare that I don't know if I can afford enough truffles in my own Well, nobody can afford truffle until... You taste truffle and you feel, you know, it's... Yeah. For me, I mean, I wish truffle was cheaper, but then it'll be just like potatoes. Everybody (laughs) could eat it. Well, it's interesting you mentioned potatoes because you talk about this very kind of humble truffle dish you made once out of a baked potato and truffles. That was uh, when I was chef at Le Cirque. We had a customer who was coming there every day. And mm-hmm. he was always eating a big potato with chive and nothing else. And I say, God, this baked potato is boring. And <laughs> I, I made him one day a baked potato with white truffle, and he went crazy. It's only two ingredients, but it's amazing. Didn't you make this dish for your father once? Oh, yes, at Christmas. Oh, my God, you know, some old story. Yeah, at Christmas, we, were, we had a candlelight dinner. Uh-huh. And he saw me working in the kitchen, and he saw me splitting the potatoes, and he saw me preparing the things. And so when I served it at the table with the candlelight and it was white tr- covered with white truffle and he couldn't tell if that was the skin of the potato. So he put it all on the side <laughs> and he started to scoop the inside and he found it very good. But then when we started to clear his plate, we realized he did eat the truffle. <laughs> <laughs> he put all the truffles, the expensive, tasty tr- morsels to the side and just yeah. focus on the potato. Yes. <laughs> he was like, Daniel, your cooking's gotten much simpler. <laughs> Yeah, well, my my father never had truffle in his life. You know, you can get confused sometimes. So I want to move on to my next item, wild hair a la royale. And this dish... Oh, man, you're really on a game trip. (laughs) I am on a game trip. It's autumn. I figured this was appropriate. Absolutely. 
and the preparation take hours. First, the wild hair get boneless totally, and then after we make a stuffing with pork and foie gras and truffles and onion and the liver. Really light food here. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, it's about the wine you're going to drink with it after, so that's okay. why it's important. And you braise it in the red wine sauce for hours and hours, very, very gently, until the sauce reduces and really get super gamey and rich. And sometimes we put a little bit of cocoa powder to keep a good tartness, uh, a little bit of tannin inside. And this dish was was originally, some say, created for Louis Fourteenth. Yes. I'm sure they were hunting around the Versailles there and finding a lot of wild hair. Some suggest he liked this because he had bad teeth and the meat is so well, soft. Yeah, of course, it's fork tender <laughs> because it cooked for hours and hours. And yeah. uh, it's it's delicious. All right, so that's great. So I have my entree. I have my truffles. I'm going to leave the game behind. Yes. And I'm going to, for dessert, I was thinking of having the chestnut Mont Blanc. Ah, I love it. So the idea came from uh, that little cake in France we have often in the winter. And, and what's, what's very good is you stay within the season, uh, mm, which you. I like, yeah. because uh, now we're talking chestnut. Yes. And the chestnut Mont Blanc, it's about the, the vanilla, the chestnut, and uh, the wonderful different combination of chestnut from the mousse to the crushed chestnut, uh, chestnut paste. And the, the candied chestnuts in the middle, it takes up to three months to candy those chestnuts? Yes, because what you do is first you choose the most beautiful chestnut there is. Mm-hmm peeled, and you put them in a a syrup. You bring them to a boil, and you let them rest. Then you bring them to a boil, and you let them rest. And you do that for days and days and days (laughs) until the chestnut slowly cook and slowly absorb the sugar. And it's it's a very, very long process to confit chestnut. You're famous for your desserts and your and your pastry chefs that have come that have worked for you. One of them has been on our show a couple of times, Dominique Ansel. Oh yeah, Mr. Cronut. That, that's right. He's Mr. He's Mr. Cronut now. Have you? He hate to be known just for <laughs> the Cronut. <laughs> yeah, no. Dominique worked uh, five years with us at Danielle. Yeah. Have you ever eaten a Cronut? Yeah, I had one actually last week again. What did you think? A little sweet. It's a little sweet. It's a little rich. But yeah. it's a craze. <laughs> so you travel a lot. You have, you have restaurants around the world. Do you have any guilty pleasure foods like the cronut? Like is, if you're at the airport, do you get a nachos or a cheeseburger? Is there something no, that... Na- nachos, I'm not too... Uh, oh, the best about. guilty pleasure I had was, you know, when you take chili con carne and you put it in a bag of Fritos. Frito pie? Yeah, Frito pie. <laughs> I mean, to me... Anytime, any day, a Frito really? Pie is my favorite thing. But right in the bag. <laughs> Are you serious? You've done yeah. that? Yeah. This oh is good goodness. because it's all about <laughs> the spice, the crunch, the kind of like soft with the beans. and Yeah, oh, the it's hot. so good. The hot. And, <laughs> Where I mean, did you discover that? Uh, well, tailgate, you know, in New York, we tailgate with the giant. <laughs> and wow. We, and, and there's always somebody uh, in charge of Frito pie. And what wine would you pair with some Frito pie? Frito pie? Uh, a chilled beer, yeah. <laughs> I don't think you want to food wine. <laughs> Danielle Ballou, he is the chef and owner of seven restaurants, including the three Michelin star joint, Danielle. Mm. His book is called Danielle, My French Cuisine. And uh, Brendan, we're coming up on the end of this post-Thanksgiving dinner party. It's sad. It is. But you know, where do you go after you've talked with one of the world's greatest chefs on well, the food show? You go off-world. 
Oh. Yes, a while back. Clever. We are. We spoke with Rehan Harmansi. She is a senior editor at Fast Company magazine, and she told us about a news story that captured her imagination. Rehan, what story are you going to be talking about at your dinner parties this weekend? Well, I'm going to be talking about this future of space farming. Wait, that would assume <laughs> think... that it has a present. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, there's there's a present and future of space farming. Is this literally farming in space? Well, it actually it actually is. You know, there's a lot of uh, private space ventures these days. A lot of them have um, farm components, but NASA is launching its first vegetable-growing experiments into space later this year. They're going to go to the International Space Station. It's time for astronauts to grow, you know, have some locally grown food. Now Martians don't have to import their food from Earth, which is great. Yeah, I mean, the carbon miles on that are ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) So wait a second, haven't they been experimenting with food up in space for a while? Isn't that where Tang came from? Well, they have, but they haven't actually grown food for humans to eat consume in space. I see. Um, so this is the first time that astronauts will be able to feed themselves off the food they're growing on spaceships. That is that is the hope, yes. Don't they have enough to do up there? They have to send messages back home. It's, they have to like right. dance and play golf. Now they got to plant beans. I mean, this just seems like an extra chore. Yeah. It's funny you mention that because while you know NASA is obviously very invested in the farm to table movement, <laughs> the growth of vegetables in space has as much to do with the mental health of astronauts as the nutritional benefits. Interesting. It gives them something to do, basically? Particularly when you're in space, there's not that much to do, and watching something grow is extremely emotionally fulfilling. Well, now when I look at the little dipper, I'll just picture a backhoe (laughs) digging up space to plant kale. Yeah. The little backhoe. Fast Company Magazine's Rehan Harmansi giving us a glimpse of the future of farming. It's exciting, but also imagine how tough it'll be to figure out where your produce comes from when it could be farmed anywhere in the universe. (laughs) (laughs) Right? I'm sorry, are these Alpha Centauri carrots? (laughs) Well, it is within 12 light years of here. I don't know if that's good or not. (laughs) We have so much to learn. All right, folks, that concludes this post-Thanksgiving all-food episode. We hope your ears are now satiated. Next week, we begin a slew of all-new episodes featuring the likes of author Nick Hornby and legendary filmmaker Mike Lee. Till then, you can keep up with us on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. Our sous chef, a.k.a. associate producer, is Jackson Musker. Brittany Martin assists us with all things digital. Our interns are Ed Morales and Christiana Cabal. Jeff Peters was our engineer this week. Peter Connie yeah. is our executive producer. And hey, if you find yourself laying around in a food coma this weekend, crawl over to your laptop and subscribe to our podcast. Please. It's available on iTunes or via the podcast network Infinite Guest. The address there is infiniteguest.org. Happy leftovers and bon appetit.